Welcome back to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast. Today's episode is a special edition featuring an interview with 98-year-old Ed Flaxman, or as I call him, Grandpa. Ed is the son of Eastern European Jewish immigrants. He was raised in a multi-generational household, came of age during the Great Depression, served in World War II, went to college on the GI Bill, married the love of his life, owned his own business, and went back to school for a master's degree in his mid-60s after he retired. He is the true definition of living history. He also had the patience and cognitive ability to sit down with me for nearly two hours to share stories and his wisdom about how to live a good life. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Ed Flaxman. So, Grandpa. Yes. First of all, happy 98th birthday. Thank you. That's a big milestone. You what? It's a big milestone. Very impressive. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I'm curious, you were born in 1925. Correct. And that's right before the Depression really Those took... were the uh, Roaring Twenties. The Roaring Twenties. So what was life like for your parents when you were born? Do you know what they were up to? Yes, I do. The <clears throat> My grandfather, Samuel Flaxman, worked for the city of Chicago and the water assessor's department. And he brought my father in. Uh, and those were patronage jobs at the time. Uh, at the time in Chicago, they had a Republican mayor. And so my father was working for the uh, city, and they would determine what your water bill was when the time came, you know, to each year. Uh, and um, as a consequence, uh, he was making a very nice living. Uh, so nice that he could afford to pay for the rent on a very large apartment in Chicago's Douglas Park area, Douglas Boulevard area. And we had living with us aunts and uncles who ever come and go. And, uh, and, and I had everything I ever would could have. I, was, I mean, life was wonderful. Well, in 1929, of course, all hell broke loose when the market went off a cliff. And in 1932, it really got terrible because the Democrats took over in Chicago. And so uh, between, and, and, and the Democrats cleaned out all the Republican patronage workers. So my father and my grandfather were both out of a job. So my father was doing at that time anything he could to, uh, to make a living for the family, and it was very tough. The Depression years were extremely difficult for us. A lot of the times, now I had some relatives, like um, my Aunt Ethel, who was my mother's oldest sister. Aunt Ethel, who was married to a guy who owned a, um, a distributing, a alcohol dis distributing company. And they were in pretty good shape. They had a home in, 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 in the south, south, south part of Chicago. 
and <clears throat> they had uh, two boys, Nate and, and uh, Albert, and I used to get their hand, hand-me-down clothes. <laughs> I used to... Um, so, you know, things, things were just tough. Uh, for a long time, he was, he was a bookmaker, and for a while, he was doing, uh, driving a cheesecake truck, uh, I, I, just uh, a, a whole series of whatever, whatever could make a, make a buck, he would, he would be involved in it. Do you know if your parents had any hobbies, any special well, interests? Well, interestingly enough, my, my mother was very artistic. I don't know if everybody in the family knew that. She used to make flowers out of, uh, you know, uh, paper flowers. And she would make tree, little trees and stuff like that and sell them. And, of course, my father was her salesman. That was another thing that he used to do. He used to, you know, go out and try and sell them to people. And so she was busy working on her, uh, on her um, flower business. And she made some beautiful stuff uh, out of, uh, I don't know what she, crepe paper or whatever the heck she used. So she was, she was involved in that, yeah. That was, that was her thing. And, and while this, all of this was going on, uh, it was my grandmother was taking care of me. So she and I were big buddies. Grandma Anna and I. And Grandma Anna was from Poland? Grandma Anna was from Poland. And they came over around 1902 or three, something like that. They came over to the United States. And uh, my mother at the time was six months old when they came over. And she was a twin, right? She was a twin. And my father was born in the United States. So uh, my grandmother used to make sure that I, I got my, my special bread that she baked for me and special foods that she made for me. And we had a, we, we had a, we had a love affair, my grandmother and I. It was, it was, I still remember it from... 95 years ago. <laughs> and you two spoke Yiddish together, right? The, my very first language was Yiddish, yes. And uh, we spoke Yiddish to each other. But you don't remember much of it now? No, I, I have little phrases, you know, that I still, I still remember. But, uh, you know, I haven't spoken it to anybody. There was nobody uh, that I knew that spoke Yiddish uh, in my later years. And, you know, it was, there was no need for it. I mean, you know, once I learned English, <laughs> the ball game was over. Once you learned English, you were good to go. <laughs> I, was good to, I was good to go. And right. do you remember starting school, what it was like to start school when you were little? Yeah, I, I went to a school that was called Lawson. And I, I, I have vague memories of being in school. Uh, we lived on Douglas Boulevard at the time. And uh, I think I think we were only there until I was about seven or eight years old, and then we moved to Albany Park, which is on the north side of Chicago, north actually northwest side of Chicago. So um, and then we moved into <laughs> in those days during the Depression, landlords would let you come and live for three months for free. 
because they they were having trouble renting their apartments. So if you come in, you can live for three months for free, and then you'd have to start paying rent. So our family would move in and live someplace for three months, and then they'd move out because they couldn't afford to pay the rent. It's a hustle. <laughs> it was. It was kind of a hustle, yes. Mm-hmm. And do you recall what your favorite subjects in school were when you were young? Uh, reading. <laughs> I was a voracious reader. I started, from the time I learned how to read, I was constantly reading, constantly. I read everything I could get my hands on. Uh, but, but, see, it got to a period in my life when I was, let's see, I want to say about nine years old. They started giving me, first of all, they started giving me piano lessons when I was five. And it turns out that somehow or other I was considered a prodigy. And by the time I was six or seven, I was already performing at Kimball Hall, uh, concerts at Kimball Hall, piano concerts. And I remember those uh, very well. Uh, My mother got me a, an outfit. It was called the Lord Fauntleroy outfit because there was a, a, I think Lord Fauntleroy, I think was a movie, movie actor or something. It was short, it was made out of satin. It was a satin jacket and a satin shirt and satin pants, short pants. And I, when I went to perform, that's what I wore. I wore, I wore um, my Lord Fauntleroy <laughs> outfit. And um, all those years from about five when I started to play, then by the time I was nine, I started Hebrew school. So my days as a kid were tough because I'd go to school from eight o'clock in the morning, no, nine o'clock, nine o'clock to three, I'd go to school. I'd come home and have to have a quick sandwich or something. And then, and then go to Hebrew school from, from, from four to six, and then come home and practice the piano for an hour or two. And then I would read until I would, fell asleep. And that was pretty much my life at the time. And I was not, I was not very happy. I still remember that, particularly with Hebrew school. The, uh, the fellas, the men who were teaching were, some of them were lawyers who were unsuccessful and, you know, uh, they, they, they couldn't find any clients and stuff like that. But they, but they, they knew Judaism, so they, um, they taught Hebrew school. And the way they taught it was they, they would teach you how to read the Hebrew letters, but they never explained what the word was. You know, you never knew what it was in English. Right, so there's no depth. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so as a consequence, uh, I stayed in Hebrew school up until I was 13, and uh, my grandmother was going through a period of not feeling really well. She had was something called Bright's disease. It had to do with the kidneys somehow. And on the day of my bar mitzvah, she died, and I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed. I, I sat on the back porch of our house, of our apartment, and cried my eyes out with my... I had a cousin who was about a year and three months older than me. He was my mother's twin sister's son. 
and we kind of grew up as almost like brothers because my, my mother's sister and her husband owned a grocery store on the west side. And when they went off to work, they would bring uh, Donald, his name was Donald Hoffman, they would bring him over to, to be with me. And we would do things like build little wagons and scooters and things like that. You know, in those days, you didn't have a television set to watch and so on. So we'd look for, we would take roller skates that came in two pieces, roller skates, and you'd take them apart, and the front two wheels you'd put on the front of a two-by-four, and the back two wheels you'd put on the back of the two-by-four, and then you would go to the grocery store and see if you could get a, a little orange box, orange crate, which was about, I don't know, about a couple of feet high, and nail that to the, to the two-by-four, and then a couple of sticks for the handles, and a couple of ca tin cans for headlights, and that was our scooter. <laughs> so that's what we did as kids. I know you're a big, lifelong Cubs fan. Yeah, since 1928. And did you ever get to go see them play live when you were a yes, kid? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. I, my father, during the, those, during the years that he worked at the, um, uh, for City Hall, he would take me to Wrigley Field, and uh, I'd get to see um, the Cubs play. And, and then my uncle Albert also would take me to the games. So I got, I got to see a lot, of, a lot of Cubs games, and I got to know the names of all the players and, and so on. And I became a really, really hardcore Cub fan. So uh, I would say probably one of the older Cub fans in existence today. Probably. Well, I remember when they won the World Series a few years back, <laughs> and I'm not really a big sports fan. I mean, I, can, I enjoy sports, but I don't follow them. But when I watched them win, I cried because I was just so happy for you. I was like, my grandpa's been waiting like almost 100 years for this moment. It was 108 years between, between World Series afterwards, and I said, I hope I don't have to wait another 108. <laughs> that would be exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I love talking about is um, sort of non-traditional paths, and of course, the timing of your life is such that a world war broke out right around when you might have either started work or gone off to college. So you chose to enlist at age 17 right. and join the Navy. Right. Um, so tell me just a little bit about that decision. Well, there are several things, several things were involved in that decision as I think back about it. Um, First of all, they, they had, the draft was going on at that time. So if you were between 18 and 35, you could be drafted into the, and not to where you wanted to go, but where they wanted, where the government wanted you to go. And, they, and everybody was going into the army because that's where most of the fighting was being done. So everybody told me, you don't want to be in the army because, you know, in, in trenches and mud and stuff like that. The Navy is a lot cleaner. You get better food and so on and so on. So I said, okay, that, that makes good sense. The other thing was I made friends with a, 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 a young man. His name was Victor Potishman. Victor was a refugee that came from...
Germany, Germany. And um, he told me a lot of stories about what was going on there and how the Jews were being treated and so on. And I said, oh boy, that could happen here. And I was, I was that aware at 17. And so even though I was, I was not political at all, but I was aware of possibilities. And I decided, well, the best thing for me to do is to go and fight for my country. So I decided to enlist in the Navy. Well, <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't enlist without my mother's signature because I was only 17. You had, you had to be 18 to enlist. So I came back and I said to my mother, it, it, I need your signature to enlist. She says, I'm not going to send you off to war. So I said, Mom, I'm not going to go to war. I said, the Navy has a place here called Navy Pier. Did you ever hear about that? She says, oh, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I'll probably be stationed there. <laughs> oh, okay. And so she signed. She was in for a big shock. <laughs> you were just slightly a little bit far away from Navy Pier. <laughs> yeah, yes, I was. I went first to uh, Great Lakes, Illinois, for boot camp. That was eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and then off I went to Millington, Tennessee to, to go to radio school where I learned how to do uh, Morse code and all kinds of st stuff with learn how to operate the transmitters and, and, and that type of thing. And from there I went to uh, Pensacola, Florida and um, I became a crew member on a on a, on a Catalina airplane, it was called a PBY-5A. It was an airplane that landed on, it was an amphibious airplane. It landed in the water and it landed on, on the land. And we, we did um, patrol flights along the coast of the United States looking for German submarines. And I did that, I was a radio gunner, it was called. And uh, and that that I was there for I don't know a while, and then they were getting ready at one point to start training uh, 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 navy men for amphibious landings, so that's when they transferred me to Hawaii. I did spend some time in California, but not very much, maybe a few months, and they sent me to. Hawaii to train for amphibious landings in a place called YPO Point. And, and, and there we did some, some, some patrols on various, you know, uh, there was little, uh, I think they were called the Splinter Fleet or something like that. There were, there were wooden boats, they were only about 110 feet long. And, and they would go look, they were submarine hunters is what they were, and I were on those for a little while. So that was pretty much the extent of, you know, of my uh, uh, being in, in, the, in, in the middle of things in, during the war. I never, I never was in any heavy combat or anything like that. Do you remember when Pearl Harbor happened? I sure do. I was, there was, when we lived in, in Chicago at the time, we lived on Farwell, and on the corner of Farwell and Sheridan was a grocery store called uh, Mesero's. And we used to hang out at Mesero's. <laughs> I think they had a soda fountain there, you know, so. 
<laughs> we used to be a big pain behind there. And I was in there on a Sunday morning. We were all sitting around, and the pharmacist had the radio on. And that's when the announcement came across that Pearl Harbor had been bombed by the Japanese. That's how I knew about Pearl Harbor. Wow. What was the general reaction in the room? I, you know, I don't think we really fully understand, understood exactly what it meant, you know, because Pearl Harbor was like, you know, how many thousand miles away from, from Chicago. And uh, little, little did we think that we would be losing friends and that we, you know, and so on. But it changed, it changed a lot of things about school. They changed some courses in there. They more heavily into mathematics. Uh, and also they had, uh, what do you call it, courses, you know, where you run different things. You, you know, you jump over hurdles. And you, oh, sure. Yeah, you, just like physical fitness stuff. Yeah, physical, physical fitness stuff was very important mm -hmm. that, that you had to do that. And um, see, in my, see, in my senior year, I was... I finally found a girl. I was never, I was never, um, how you say it, never had a crush on anybody. I mean, I went on, I, I went on dates, but, you know, they were friends, basically, is the way I looked at it, girlfriends. But then I found this one girl, her name was Norma, and I really, I really liked her. And when I was at Great Lakes, she used to come and visit me during, you know, visitor's hours there. And, of course, while I was overseas, she got married. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness, because I think you made the best choice in a wife, obviously. I, I, I did. So let's get to the juicy stuff. Tell me about how meeting I'm, Grandma. How I met Grandma. Okay. <clears throat> I had a friend named Kenny Marks. And, and Kenny and I were palling around a lot when we got out of the service. And there was a restaurant on Sheridan Road in Chicago. It was called um, the Townhouse. And Kenny and I used to go over there every now and then have a sandwich or something like that. So one day we walk in, and there's uh, somebody we know, Winnie, sitting all by herself at a table. So I said, hey, Winnie, you like some company? She said, yeah, come on, guys. So we walked over, Kenny and I walked over, and we sat down and we're talking. And then Kenny says to her, um, what are you doing Saturday night? <laughs> and so she says, why? And he says, well, how would you like to go to a movie or something like that, you know? Oh, great, yeah, okay. I said, hey, do you have a girlfriend, you know? And maybe we can double date. So she says, well, what do you prefer, blondes or brunettes? I said, well, I really prefer brunettes. So she says, I got some for you, somebody for you. Okay. So we made arrangements, and we went. Uh, Kenny picked me up and picked up Winnie, and then we drove, and, and then we went, and we, we picked up Grandma, <laughs> Marilyn. And we went to the uh, Edgewater Beach Hotel, the Edgewater Beach Hotel at that time had a, a thing. It was like a um, uh, a resort kind of thing. It was right along the beach, along Lake Michigan. It was lovely. 
and you, when you went over this little bridge, and it had these little Japanese lanterns, and uh, I forget what else. I think they had palm trees out there, if I remember. I mean, the hotel's been destroyed, you know, that taken down. But all night long, I tried to kiss Grandma, <laughs> and she and she hated me. And she and she said she's never going to date. She's never going to date me again. Well, I liked her a lot. I fell in love with her right away, uh, right from the beginning. When I first, the first time I saw her, I absolutely was crazy about her, and so I kept I kept calling her, and, and sometimes she would answer, and sometimes she wouldn't, and finally we got started talking in these long conversations. I don't, I don't even remember what we were talking about, but we had these long conversations. The next thing I know, we were dating, and, and, and I met her on Labor Day of 1946. I got out of the service April the 16th of 1946, and I met her that Labor Day. And then, uh, <laughs> Next thing I remember, we were going to buy an engagement ring. <laughs> so it all happened so quickly. Yeah, I, to this day I don't remember asking her to marry me. So, but um, she she used to she was a dress designer, and and she dressed beautifully. She just so beautifully, and I remembered everything she ever wore. I I remember that, and I was I was so crazy about her. I was just. You know, you say you love crazy, and so next thing I know, I'm standing before the rabbi, <laughs> getting married. <laughs> so you guys got married in December. Was that December 21st? I was on vacation. I was going to college at the time. I was going to Roosevelt College, and uh, uh, that was our two weeks. You get two weeks Christmas vacation, so we decided that we would get married. We. Um, we got married, and we took the uh, the city of New Orleans train down to to New Orleans, and we spent our honeymoon in New Orleans, and we had a really wonderful time. Some really great food down there. Any meals stand out, or anything in particular? Well, there was. I remember there was one restaurant that was particularly good. It was called the Three Sisters, or something like that. And boy, was that good. <laughs> uh, and then we went to the racetrack, and we went... Any live music? Any what? Music? Uh, concerts and things like that? Yeah, because isn't New Orleans known for jazz, and I know that uh, you yeah, like jazz. If you went, if, yeah, if you went to certain, certain clubs, you know. Yeah, we, 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 we did. We, but, we, you know, we were, we were very young. She was 21, and I was 22, and we we were far from worldly. I mean, I had, I had just lived with a, with nothing but men <laughs> for, right. for almost three years, you know. And uh, as a consequence, uh, there were a lot of things that we didn't we didn't know existed. And 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 and, and Grandma used to she used to like to drink. Uh, my uh, my ties. Mm -hmm. So I remember, I would I would order navy grog, and she would order my tie. <laughs> what is navy grog? Navy grog. What is that? Is that a beer? 
No, no, it's it's alcohol. Okay. It's uh, rum and uh, and whatever else they put in there. I don't know what it is, but it's called Navy Grog, and I loved them. And 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 Grandma would drink a mai tai, and then she would say, "I think I'll have another one." Well, when she was about halfway through the second one, when she started to call me Edward, then I, I knew she had too much to drink. <laughs> uh, but we had. Your grandmother and I had uh, so much fun. We had did so many things together. Can you, I know there were many, but can you pick a favorite trip the two of you ever went on? Yes, I, I can think of a lot of them. One of them was when we had just the two of us, and I had just bought, we had just bought our first car. It was a 1949 Ford. It was a two-door, two-door Ford, and I remember the price of that car was nine hundred dollars. <laughs> I'll take two. <laughs> yeah, they're small. I'll take two. And so, uh, I, once again, you know, here we were. We were young, very young. We had not. I had never been out of Chicago until I went into the Navy. And you know, uh, to me, Canada was like Iceland. Might be <laughs> Iceland. So we packed for our, we, we decided that we would take a trip up to, to uh, Canada. And we made reservations at some place up there, I forget what it was called, but it was beautiful, it was overlooking the lake and stuff like that, you know. So uh, we packed, and of course we're going up to, uh, to Canada. We had a <laughs> pack with, it was in it was, it was in Ontario, which has about the same climate as Chicago, and so we we packed woolen woolen pants and woolen this and woolen that. We wanted to make sure we were warm and had sweaters and stuff. So we get up there, and we drive up there, and we're at this place where we made the reservations, and we're going in this long driveway into the main you know office of the of this resort, and I see all the people seem to have gray hair and stuff like that. It was, it was like an old folks home. And we stayed there for one night, and I said, no thank you. So uh, 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 Grandma had an aunt and an uncle. Uncle uh, Aunt Pearl was a poet, and, and, and Uncle, um, whatever his name was, um, he was a, a copywriter. He worked for some big, really big uh, advertising agency, and they had an apartment in uh, in New York City. So she calls her aunt and says, "How about if we come in and visit? You know, oh, they'll be happy to see us." So we drove into New York, and here it is. It's ninety degrees in New York, and we are with all our our, our winter clothes. You know. That's the way it goes. That's how you learn. So did you have to go shopping, or did you just sweat it out? We sweat it out. <laughs> we were young. What, what do we know, right? Yeah. Yeah, so... So you and Grandma were together for 75 years, right? 76, maybe. No, no, no. Well, from 1946, and then she went into uh, assisted living. Right. She passed uh, away last year in 2022. So you were married for almost 70, fully... Well, we were married for 74 years. Right. 
And and before that, we knew each other for about a little over a year. Right. So about we knew each other for a little over seventy five years. So what do you think is the best thing about knowing someone for seventy five years? Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a very very interesting thing. The first thing I have to say about it is that we really liked each other. Um, we we had our differences from time to time. But to me, you know, Grandma, my, my, my ambition was for her to be as happy as she could be and have whatever she wanted. When we would buy cars, I bought her a Cadillac and I drove a little Chevy, you know, <laughs> whatever. Uh, and when it came time for coats and things, I bought Grandma mink coats. And I would just wear cloths, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but the, the thing is, one time, and, and we even, when we went into business, when I decided to open my own business, the first thing I decided was that she was going to be my partner because that's, that's how much I trusted her. And trust is very important in marriage. And so I split the... The, the, the stock in the business, each had 50%. We each owned exactly half, half of the business. We, we never had separate accounts. We always had one, one account for the two of us, and that's the way we liked it. I remember talking to somebody one time and telling them, a friend of your father's named Lenny, and uh, I told him that Grandma was my partner. 50% partner. What? You gave your wife 50% partner? I would never do that. And I said, well, I trust my wife. So I said, you know, and I said, when I go, oh, when I travel and I go to Japan or wherever I go, I know that the business is in good hands because it's, it's hers too, you know. So we were buying insurance. And I remember the sales agents, it was Laurie and Al, and we were buying these policies, and then after we were finished, we were talking, and Laurie takes me aside and he says to me, he says, hey Ed, he says, you know I noticed, you and Marilyn really like each other. I said, yeah, why are you surprised? So he said, well, most of the people I know don't really like each other that much. I said, that's too bad, that's a shame, but we we did everything together, and I never I, I I I I never regretted it ever. When I when I took up golf, she took up golf with me. When I took up skiing, she took up skiing with me. And Grandma was not the most athletic person in the world, but she was known as an overachiever. <laughs> she, she, she loved to do cross country skiing, and. Uh, I remember another trip where we went with two other couples on a skiing trip. So in those days, I took along my cross-country skis so that I could ski with Grandma and my downhill skis. And we drove to um, uh, um, well, this town in California. Um, I forget it. Anyway. Uh, we went skiing. I went skiing in, in the morning. I went downhill skiing. 
And then at noontime, I came back and uh, put on my and took my got my cross country skis, and we and we drove into um, I forget the name of the area in California for cross country. We had such a fun time. We were like two adolescents. It was a ton of snow, and we were having snowball fights, and we were rolling in the snow, and you'd never think we were we were old marrieds. You know, it was just a wonder. Just a wonderful trip. I enjoyed every moment of it. And then another trip that we really enjoyed. When when uh, when we sold the business, I decided to go back to uh, to school again to get a, ma a to, I wanted to see. I wanted to get a master's degree, but I I wanted to go to to a community college first to see if I could still do, you know, academics. So I went to a school here called Oakton Community College. And I really liked it. <laughs> I got on the honor roll, and I was, and I said, "Oh, hey, this is really good." So, I think I did. I think I did one year at Oakton, and then I went to Northeastern Illinois, and got my my master's degree in uh, in psychology, and and gerontology. I had a minor in gerontology. And how old were you at this point? Sixty something. Um, Let's see, uh, 1988, I graduated, I got my master's in 92, so I would have been how old, from 1925 to 1992? <laughs> yeah, so like a little bit less than in, 70, right? Just 60, under 70, six, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's when I got my master's. That's amazing. I was going to go for a, uh, for a doctoral. Uh, there's a uh, an, an Adler School of Psychology in downtown Chicago, right across from Roosevelt University, and I was going to apply there. And they said to me, "Well, okay, send 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 me an autobiography." And I said, "Oh, jeez." <laughs> and so then that's when we decided to move to uh, Arizona. Mm. So I figured, eh, I'm not going to, you know, what, what am I going to do with a Ph.D.? Except brag about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, when we, moved, when we moved to Arizona, I got involved uh, in, a, in a peer counseling program with the senior center. And I would, I would, I would do uh, group things and so on, you know. I, I loved group sessions. Because you get a lot of information, get people to talk a lot in a group session, that they that they won't, you know, in in, in an individual session. Mm -hmm. So that was great. But we and we took oh I know one, one trip we really enjoyed. Um, while I was at Oakton, there was a notice on one of their billboards, of their boards, that was offering a uh, ten day trip to Europe. For twenty two hundred bucks for two people, I said, "Man!" So I call Grandma. Hey, I said, and I tell her, "You want to go?" She said, "When we're we leaving." I said, "I think tomorrow." She said, "I'm ready." <laughs> she was born ready. She was born ready, and so we went. We went on this trip. There were eight, eight, there were eighteen, eighteen young girls who were taking pass fail courses at Oakton. Because they were all going to different schools like Illinois and Michigan and stuff, but they didn't want to take those courses 
you know, in grade for grades. Right. So they took him a, 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 a pass fail, and we went with this group. There were there were eighteen young girls. There were two teachers. One was they were both Italians. One was an American Italian, born in America. The other one was born in Italy, but they both spoke fluent Italian, which was great. And there was a, an older lady, I don't know, she was a student also. She'd come along with us. And so we, we, we went to, um, um, we flew to, I think, Paris. And then from then on, we were in buses and stuff. And we stayed in Lyon, we stayed in... We went to Switzerland. We went to Italy. We, you know, it was it was a. Just and a, you were in your sixties, and everyone else, or was oh, this? Oh when yeah, you, they were all yeah, they were all youngsters. They were all eighteen, but you were like a. Oh yeah, well into my sixties, yeah. yeah. Amazing. We were well. We had with us. We had three Jewish girls. There may have been more, but only these three. Kind of, we got friendly with them, and we were there like their chaperones, and. There was a couple. There was a temple in Florence that they wanted to see, and so we went. Took them. We went to the temple with them. Synagogue. Uh, we also went to the synagogue in Rome. To there, and there was a bus driver. There was a cute little blonde girl. I remember, a little flirtatious little girl, and she was flirting with this driver, of the bus, and he was quite a bit older than her. I took him aside one day and I said, "Listen." She's just a kid. She's 18 or 19 years old. I said, now you keep your hands off her. I said, because if I find out that you're trying to do anything funny, I'm going to kick your behind. <laughs> and so he stayed away from her. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, they were nice kids. I mean, you know, they were a lot of fun. And um, that was a nice trip. We really enjoyed that. So a lot of people say that one of the secrets to... A happy marriage is something like never go to bed angry. But do you have any other specific words of wisdom except for obviously maybe like your spouse? That seems like a really important one. Well, you know, if we had disagreement, we talked about it. You know, why did you do that? I don't know. I mean, I... And so on. And and we would you know it's easy to talk it out if you're open if you have an open mind and you know a lot of my friends would say to me I never tell my wife a lot of things you know I don't want her to know about because if we ever have an argument they'll come up and and they'll, she'll use it against me I said well I said my my wife knows everything about me that there is to know she used she used to t her friends would say to her. Because I used to travel, I'd be gone for three weeks, and she would. They would say to her, "Do you trust him? You know, out there with God knows, you know, in Japan, in Korea, in uh, Taiwan, you know." And Marilyn said, "Listen, if he fools around, it'll be written on his forehead when he comes home." <laughs> An honest man. That's right. Yeah. No, With a bad I'm, poker face. Bad poker face. So, uh, but I, when I traveled, I, I, it was terrible, really. I mean, I enjoyed the travel to a certain extent, 
but everybody thought it was so so romantic and so glamorous. Well, I don't know what the hell's glamorous about. You go there and you go to a hotel and you meet your representative and you go out and you make sales calls and then you go and you have dinner at nine o'clock at night, which caused me to gain about 30 pounds and I had to go on a diet. I was constantly dieting, trying to get the weight off. And, and so I said, it's not so glamorous. All you see is, uh, you know, your, your, your agent and the airport and the, and the customers. And most of the customers I didn't like very much, you know. <laughs> they were always trying to get better prices. Right. So I would, if I was gone for a couple of weeks, I called home, I remember, t after the second week sometime, and David, your dad, would get on the phone and, and hey, Daddy, when are you coming home? <laughs> I'd say, oh, i got a great toy for you or something, you know. Aww. I would always find something to bring them. It got to a point where we were bringing so much stuff, eventually I was bringing little sample soap, bars of soap. <laughs> hey, here's a look at this. The Hotel, the hotel Ritz in, <laughs> in, in, in Toronto. <laughs> the nicest hotel soap ever. Yeah, <laughs> especially for you. <laughs> oh, I mean, as a little kid, I recall receiving some fun hotel soaps from my father's travels, so yeah. they may have really enjoyed them. Yeah, your father. <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were uh, your father and Joan, we were up in Quebec, Canada, and we were staying at the Frontenac, Hotel Frontenac. It's a lovely old place that's, I don't know, hundred and some years old. Where the beds, you know, are this high. You practically need a ladder to get into the bed. Anyway, their towels were luxurious. And God, I wanted those towels in the worst way. And so we're getting ready to leave, and we're packing the towels, and your father's standing there. Dad, those don't belong to us. I said, oh, don't worry, David. I'm going to pay for these. <laughs> Another honest man. Yeah. It's in the jeans. Well, he did that to his sister. We were walking out of a, of a store, and she was, I don't know, three, four years old or something like that, or five years old, and she took a candy bar and walked out of the store with it. David made her walk back in and tell the lady that she took the candy bar. <laughs> he, he was always very honest. Seriously, yeah. that's impressive. Oh yeah, yeah. So, obviously, you had a very have had are having a very successful life, and I'm curious when you were a young man, let's say maybe twenty, maybe twenty two, right as you're getting married, your vision of what quote unquote success would look like versus what it became for you versus how you would define success now. Are they the same? Are they different? And if so, how do they differ? That's, that's, a, that's a very difficult question. I'll tell you why. I never thought much about 10 years down the road. I have to admit that. All I wanted was to make a good living for my, for my family. And I didn't like working for other people. That's why I went in business for myself. And I was never as happy as I, as when you know there were there were times when it was, it, 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 I mean <laughs> there were times when I used to at nighttime I couldn't fall asleep but somebody would always, you know, such and such a company owes you one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and it's one hundred and fifty days old and they haven't paid it you know, 
and grandma would give me the shot to the ribs and say, go to sleep, <laughs> you know, stop, stop the moaning. <laughs> so, uh, I, you know, I remember somebody walking in, uh, they, they wanted, there was a line, a, a, a line of uh, electronic component uh, of capacitors, capacitors of some sort, and I wanted to handle that line in our business because uh, we were distributors, you know. And so this guy comes in, he's a sales representative for him. Well, what's your 10-year outlook? I said, I never thought 10 years, that's a long time. I said, I, I, said, I guess I still want to be in business. <laughs> but I, I said, and, and making a living for my family and doing a big job, good job for, for the people I represent. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was that was a standard question at the time. What is your what is your future outlook? Well, you know, at twenty two or twenty three or twenty five or thirty, or whatever, it's not easy. And and to me, from what I can see now, it's even tougher now to to to, to find your niche in in society. <laughs> I remember. You know, it wasn't very long ago when I said to Robert, your brother, I said, Robert, I said, you know, I've gotten to it, but I was, I was already in my 90s. I said, you know, Robert, I never expected to live this long. I said, and now, you know, I haven't, I haven't had a job for I can't tell you how many years. I mean, I just enjoyed myself by playing tennis and golf and, you know, enjoying life and traveling and stuff. I said, and you know, what am I, what am I, what am I attributing, contributing to, 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 to our society? He says, well, Grandpa, you're making us happy. I said, really? He said, yes. I said, okay. <laughs> That's, That's all right. I need to know. Yeah, you have a job. You're the great grandfather to three young ladies. It's a very important Which job. Which is the pride of my life. It's uh, a special uh, club being a great grandparent. I, I really enjoy having this those three great-grandchildren. Well, they're very lucky to have you. Well, they're nice kids, and I, I like them a lot. Oh, good. Me too. I guess we'll keep them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep them around. Yeah. So, quickly, if you can, yes. tell me about a time in your life that you faced a major setback or maybe experienced the feeling of failure and then how you overcame that. Okay, uh, well, I wouldn't say failure. Uh, the, the electronic industry is a, as, as we'll attest to, <laughs> uh, is a fast, fast-moving industry. And, for example, I don't know, you know, how to put this so that it's easily understandable, but... What we sold were component parts. They were called capacitors, resistors, diodes, and stuff. And you would put them all together, and you would make an amplifier, you would make a radio, you would make a TV set with vacuum tubes and stuff like that. Well, the progress was so great that eventually customers who used to buy tens of thousands of dollars worth of resistors and capacitors and stuff from us suddenly start buying, uh, what do you call it? Uh, 
<laughs> like pre-assembled? Or All something? pre-assembled. Yeah. Right, yeah. And we couldn't compete because the companies that were making them were huge, huge companies. So as a consequence, for example, these these the parts that we bought, we that we sold and bought, we bought them from basically from Taiwan and Korea, where the where the prices were the were the lowest. They got so cheap that, and the competition became so fierce, you could hardly make a profit. You couldn't make a profit on them. Something that that you know the, the one time you paid a hundred dollars for a thousand, you're now paying ten dollars for a thousand of them. So as a consequence, you know, uh, customers that we had, big customers that were, uh, were were giving us hundreds of thousand dollars worth of business, they stopped buying from us because they they could buy these completed uh, assembled assembled units, you know. Uh, and now those things are like, hmm. <laughs> well, you know, look at the rate of this. I mean, this this is probably more powerful than our first computer we had. Right, of course. In, in our business. So I decided at that time, well, it was time to sell the business, which we did. We, I sold the business to one of our, Larry Lynn, who was our sales manager. And he was well, he wanted to buy it. So... That was in 1980, something, 82? Was that 82, 83? I forget what year that was. Anyway, or 86, something like that, somewhere in that area. And and I decided that I wasn't going to work anymore. I had accumulated enough money. I figured, I mean, today somebody would look at it and say, no way you're going <laughs> to exist on that. But... We weren't we weren't foolish. We didn't buy boats. We didn't, you know, we didn't spend money foolishly. Uh, if I had a car, I drove it for ten years. <laughs> Before I used to exchange them every two years because the business paid for them. Right. You know. So I I stopped working when I was sixty two, and I haven't worked since. Wow. That's a long time, 30-some years. That's a long time, yeah. playing golf and tennis and traveling. Yeah. But we enjoy, I, I would say we enjoyed, we enjoyed our early years in 1994 when we moved to Scottsdale. We really enjoyed being outside every day of the year. You could do something every day of the year. Graham and I, we played golf together. We played tennis together. Um, you know, all kinds of things. We, we'd go out for walks in the morning, and, and it was nice. We really enjoyed it. But the longer we were there, the warmer the, the, season, the seasons ran. When we first got there, they used to say, ah, summer is, you know, uh, June, July, and August. Yeah, well, by the time we left in 2015, summer was from... April to November, mm-hmm. and it was you t- you'd, you'd park in front of a restaurant, you go inside and come out an hour later, and you couldn't touch the door handle, and there were very few inside parking places. Some of the some of these, the the uh, uh, department stores had inside parking uh, in Fashion Square, you know, there all those stores, but I I couldn't take the heat. It was just you know. 
and, and just recently when they, they went through this period of, I don't know, about three weeks of 115, 118. Right. You, it, would, you know, it didn't make sense to even go outside. They also have, this summer, there was a lot of reporting on water shortages oh, in the oh suburbs yeah. Oh, oh of yeah. Phoenix and oh, some towns yeah. having their water cut off completely. Yep. They're going to have big problems down the line. Yeah. Because the Colorado River supplies water to, I think, eight states plus Mexico. And the farmers in California had more than their, excuse me, had more than their share. Right. So, you know, they rely on these reservoirs. Yeah. And they were having drought after drought after drought. That's why they have these wildfires there. Right. You know, all the forests and things turn to nothing but firewood. Right. Okay, so the people want to know, what is the secret to staying so youthful? Because you're not just alive, right? You're not just 98. You are smart. You're funny. You're hanging out. You're running around town, not literally running, with your great-grandkids. Um, what's the secret? Well, it's not a secret, is it? <laughs> I, tennis. 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 <laughs> I read recently that people who have good legs, strong legs, live longer. If you're not struck with, you know, con- cancer or, or diabetes or, you know, some, some, some disease. And uh, I've, always, I've always... Your father was instrumental... In, in my diet for the rest of my life um, from a phone call that he made to me when he was a member of um, Nautilus Club. Hey, Dad, why don't you come and join? The exercise would be good for you. I was, I think it was 50 at the time. So I, so I said, okay. Sounds good. And so, of course, Grandma said, I think I'll join too. I said, okay, let's go. Not only did I join the Nautilus, but I stayed in the health club for years, number one. Number two, I went along with his dietary ideas and became a vegetarian. And and I was a vegetarian for a lot of years. In uh, 1975, I stopped eating beef. Uh, I read an article in the uh, New Yorker magazine, not New Yorker, New York, New York magazine, about this guy that had a, um, uh, his his heart rate was kind of not steady and so on. Mm-hmm. The doctor said, well, pretty soon you're going to need uh, heart uh, surgery, blah, blah, blah. And so they, they put him on a diet, they took him off of beef, and he went on what you'd call a... Um, like Mediterranean? Mediterranean diet, moderation. Mm-hmm. And so I said, that sounded good to me because I'll eat anything that won't eat me first. <laughs> and so... <laughs> but there's a few things like anchovies and stuff that, yeah. that I, I, I refuse to eat. But uh, I, I followed along with, you know... Well, you'll, I don't know if you notice or not. Whenever I'm with him, I always order vegetarian. Mm. I never order any kind of meat of, at all because I figured, I mean, you know, peer pressure. Peer pressure, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you eat fish and chicken and. Oh yeah, I eat. I um, there's a, there's a certain type of lamb chop that I love. Mm. The, 
and they have a different name. The like lollipop ones, those little no, ones. No, but they're thick. Mm-hmm. They're nice and thick. And I used to buy those um, a couple at a time, and Grandma loved those also. But after a while, they started to have a lot of fat on them and stuff. So I, I figured, eh, <laughs> not worth it. And uh, what's your favorite vegetable? My favorite vegetable? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I could, I, I, I can't, I would have to say tomatoes, they're mm. vegetables, right? Yeah, well, they're technically fruit, but we'll let it slide. Right, yeah. I eat a lot of toma- a lot of tomatoes, a lot of cucumbers. Yeah. Uh, uh, I love broccoli, steamed, mm. steamed broccoli. Me too. Uh, you could go on and on. I mean, I, I, I'll eat almost anything. Um I, you know, I fell out of love with uh, romaine. Mm. <laughs> Too crunchy. Or? Well, there's a whole big part of the of this. I was buying romaine hearts. Yeah. And you know, some of it is. is yeah, you, you kind of throw away the whole bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Feels wasteful. Yeah. So I, I, I know that iceberg lettuce is nothing but water, but I eat enough of the other stuff. You yeah. Know, to, and you need water. Yeah. Oh boy. And how do I? Yeah. I'm. I, I try to stay as hydrated as can be. All right, so that's the cliff notes for how to live to almost 100. Exercise, eat your vegetables, and stay hydrated and have a happy marriage, I think. Well, listen, when I was really involved in tennis, I, I used to, we, we belonged to the Highland Park Country Club in Highland Park, and... I used to get over there about nine o'clock. This is every day of the week, and I'd play singles from nine to ten. Then I would play doubles from ten to one, have lunch from one to two, and then play doubles from two to five, and then play mixed doubles in the evening with Grandma and, and some of our friends from five to whatever. <laughs> And that was every day, and I was, you know, when I when I had my heart attack, it came as a big shock to me. I was 74, and after the surgery, I went to see the doctor, and he said to me, he says, you're very lucky. He says, you had very little, very little muscle damage to your to your heart. He says, you're in, you know, you're in good shape. And he says, now this, I was 74 at the time, and he says, you got, you got 10 years at least. Dr. Gonzalez, I remember. You should call him up. I think of it every now and then, but I don't know where he is these days. Yeah, you're like, uh, buddy, I had almost 30 years. Like, yeah, we're still well, going. Uh, let's see, 23 years. Yeah, we? yeah, we're, we're just still ticking on. Yeah. You know, I also, so you mentioned earlier um, enjoying, I think it was Navy Grog. Grog? Yeah. Grog? Grog, yeah. Um, but as long as I've known you, which is, you know, about 36 years, you haven't really consume much alcohol so I don't, I don't, at, I at what point did you kind of um well I, I never was a big consumer I, I some of the nicest things that grandma and I used to do when we lived in Northbrook we we had the the uh, the backyard loaded with trees and in Japan they have these little streams that run through their property and so 
I spoke to our our uh, um, gardener, and uh, and he was he he was he was basically a, an architect, a uh, uh, you know a um, landscape architect. Landscape architect. So he said, I, "What I can do is, is I can make it a, like a sand," and he built like a little sand river. And we used to sit out there, and our patio was paved with these little paver, uh, and it looked like eyes, you mm -hmm. know. And we used to stop, and we'd buy a couple of bottles of wine, and we'd buy a, a loaf or two of bread and cheese. And Grandma would sit out on the back. I had a couple of loudspeakers that I had hooked up in the backyard, and we played classical music. And we would sit, and we would talk, and we'd have wine, and we'd have a couple of glasses, you know, and, and, and we loved, your father got us into Gruyere cheese. Mm -hmm. We loved Gruyere cheese. And, uh, and, 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 and then our neighbor, one of our neighbors, <laughs> Elliot, I remember, <laughs> who later divorced his wife, he said to me one day, he says, I see you and Marilyn sitting out there talking to each other. What do you talk about? I said, everything. I said, we talk about the kids, we talk about you, we talk about <laughs> the weather. <laughs> we talk about your impending divorce. <laughs> well, he came to me one day. They had five kids. Wow. And actually what happened, they, evidently they had married on the rebound. She, she had had a, I don't know what happened, but that's the way it was. She was on the rebound. And they had five kids. He was a dentist. Nice guy, I used to play tennis with him every morning in, in the winter, you know, indoors. And he comes to me and he says, you know, Ed, I gotta ask you a question. Because I was somewhat older than him. And he said, you know, I don't know if Julie loves me or not. So I said, Elliot, there's a, a very simple answer to that. I said, Julie, do you love me? He says, really? I said. How else are you going to find out? So a couple of days later, he says to me, I did what you said. I asked her. She said, no, she didn't love me, but she liked me, and I was good to her, and so on. I said, and your reaction? He says, well, he says, to tell you the truth, I was really hurt. I said, well, you know, Elliot, I want to tell you something. Being liked is more important than being loved. Yeah. So he said, oh, okay. Well, I don't know. Shortly after that, they got, <laughs> they got divorced. And still, the wisdom that you imparted on him was true, I think. Yeah. I mean, love is beautiful, but yeah. um, I often have disagreed with the Beatles' song, Love is All You Need, because no, there is true. a lot more to life than love, and love can get you through some really hard things, but... It is important to like people and to respect them and um, and to want to actually learn about them. And I think it's possible to love someone and not necessarily be curious about them. Absolutely. And I think curiosity is really important. An important word in my vocabulary, and I'm not always that way. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be set myself up as an as a angel, is being non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. And I try, over the years, I tried very hard to be that way with my children. You can't always be that way. Sure. They do certain things when they're young, and, and you got to tell them about it, you know, and say you did the wrong thing. 
So. Uh, listen, nobody, nobody hands you a a, a, a handbook. Book. Yeah, there's hand no book. guidebook. I mean, Doctor Spock was a nice guy, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Wasn't Doctor Spock one of the ones that said, "Eh, let him cry." Yeah, yeah, right. Doesn't sound that nice. We have some younger listeners in my audience, some teenagers. And as you know, the world's kind of screwed up right now. It's kind of a scary time to be looking ahead at the future and wondering how you're going to fix it. On the other hand, uh, you lived through the Great Depression and a very famous world war and all kinds of things. So do you have any words of wisdom for the young (laughs) people of today who are looking ahead and thinking about what they should do, how they should contribute, how to take the next step. I have to tell you, Marion, I don't have a clue <laughs> with young people. I don't think a lot of young people trust older people. Mm. They don't want to tell them what's on their mind or so on. I, I, I don't know. And I, 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 frankly, I don't have the patience <laughs> to dig deep. I don't want to be, you know, I, I have this friend, Pat. We have a nice platonic friendship and it's nice to have somebody I can get on the phone and say hey I'm sitting here I'm all alone I need somebody to talk to what do you got to tell me today you know yeah it's nice and uh, I'm, I feel very fortunate to, to have someone like that because everybody I know <laughs> practically is dead right okay so friendship is key maybe maybe companionship friendship yeah friendship so do you think that the younger generation is going to figure out global warming? Who's going to figure it out? You know, like, you know, kids in their 20s, are they going to figure it out? Well, you know, I'm very confused about the younger generations. I really am. There's some of them, like I see these guys that are in their 20s that are running for Congress, and they all happen to be Democrats. Um, so there's a lot of really... Uh, thinking young people just like yourself and the character over there <laughs> producer out of sight <laughs> uh, who who are concerned about you know and then there are a lot of others who don't give a damn so you know to my way of thinking it's not a hell of a lot different than it was when I was young yeah you know um a lot of us are are are, are um, uh, egocentric, <laughs> and uh, a lot of us uh, don't care. I I, I think I, I get the feeling that there's a lot of I don't give a damn about the next person. Mm. As long as I'm as long as I'm getting what I want, yeah, then everything is okay. Yeah. So. it's it's hard well (laughs) hopefully your great grandkids who you know are very smart and very curious will be part of the next generation that really is i mean i guess my generation too right we're still inheriting a lot of problems and trying to solve them are you the z i'm what am i no i'm a a millennial millennial Yeah. Yeah. yeah i'm a millennial and then i think my daughter is gen z my oldest, anyway. Yeah, my little yeah, ones. I don't Aurora, think we've gotten yeah. to them yet. But Aurora, my oldest, um, she's Gen Z. And they're they're interesting. We'll see. Aurora is turning out, she's I would great. say, pretty damn good. Yeah, she's doing good. Yeah. And she works at True Food, which you initially introduced me to. 
I had never heard of it until they opened one near you in Arizona. So it was your influence that led her to her first job. And her first job was very influential on her. So thanks for that. Mm. Great work. Good. Okay, last two questions. Yes. You've been alive for almost 10 decades. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a a favorite decade in there? A favorite decade? A favorite decade. Either like personally or culturally. Like maybe you loved the... Oh, the golden years, the golden years of of opera. (laughs) Oh, nice. Yeah, with uh, Jan Pierce and Richard Tucker and and, and, uh, a whole bunch of guys that were really, were really wonderful singers. Uh, I was very heavily into, there was, there was always music in our house. When David was a little boy, I had, I forget what they call it, it's a little bouncy chair or something like that. Mm-hmm. And and he used to bounce in this thing. He was, I don't know, what, six months old or whatever. And at the time, uh, I, uh, what was the name of it? Bum, bum, ba-da-da-dum, da-dum, da-da-da-dum. And he would bounce. <laughs> oh. I said, you know, you see, see, my judgment is based on my first, my first musical instrument was a, was a Victrola with a hand crank. You would wind up the motor by hand, and then it would play until it ran, it ran out. <laughs> and so the voices would go, ah. <laughs> Wow. But, but, but you had, you know, you had, you had uh, some of the older singers, you had Gili, you had uh, who was the famous one? Italian. There were a bunch of them, but um, wonderful singers and wonderful orchestras. And uh, which decade was this? Well, uh, 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 I my interest really started when I was about five years old. Okay. And uh, I started to play the piano. Yeah. And became interested in the So pi- the 30s and 40s maybe were? Yeah, 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 30s and 40s. Yeah. And I was gone from 43 to uh, 46. Right. And, but I always, always had music, always. I always had a stereo system. I remember we lived in a, Grandma and I lived in an apartment on Winthrop. It was like a, a hotel apartment building. It was our first apartment. It was a one-bedroom apartment with a bed that you push up into the wall. And I used to play music when I was studying. I was going to college at the time. And I used to leave the window. We didn't have air conditioning. And I left the windows open. Grandma would say, when she was coming home from work, she was working at the time, she says, I can hear your music by the L station. (laughs) (laughs) Aww. Yeah, memories. We, memory. Oh, so I got so many memories. memories. We could record for 12 hours, but the library would kick us out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could, I could think of a lot of the things, but... Well, Grandpa, I want to thank you for sitting down with me and talking. I know that I could ask you a million more questions, but probably both of our legs would fall asleep and <laughs> we'd have to be carried out of here. So... Feet first. Feet first. <laughs> So in closing, just one more question. Go ahead. Which is, is there anything that you feel you want to share for either, you know, 
younger people, people of my generation, older people, just anything that you yes, think. Yes, I do. Tell me. The secret to success is keep a smile on your face, number one. Number two, be kind to other people because generally speaking, they will turn the kindness, return it. Those are very important things. And I know sometimes I've had people say to me, how come you're always smiling? I said, because why should I be angry? What have I got to be angry about? I could be angry I had quadruple bypass. I could be angry I have uh, 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 kidney problems. I could be angry. I, I, I mean, a hundred reasons I could be angry, but, but I'm here. And I got a wonderful family. I got us a whole big support group. If I need to talk to anybody on the phone, I can talk to you, I can talk to my, my son, my, my son, my daughter-in-law, I can talk to, to my friend. I, have a, I even have young friends, 43 years old, Ramsey. And, and I got an a, a opera singer friend in California, and, and I've got some nieces and nephews who call me on my birth. I mean, so, you know, what, what, what's there to be sad about? So, so stay positive. So I don't have a million dollars in the bank? What would I do with it? Buy a boat. Buy a boat. Yeah, buy a boat. <laughs> Sail a submarine into the sunset. So I could bring pot over it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the secret, folks. If he had a million, he'd be drug trafficking. So it's good that he doesn't because we like him out of jail. <laughs> You're much safer here. So I think I, think I said somebody on Facebook asked, would you, be, would you be happy to have the same father again? And I said, and I said no. I would like my father to be the guy who owns Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> but then you wouldn't have as many colorful tales. Yeah, I'd have more. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again for listening to the Marion Flaxman Network Podcast. This episode was produced by Brain Trust Productions and sponsored by Informed Solutions Consulting. For more information about me and more episodes of this podcast, please visit marionflaxman.com. Thank you once again for listening, and we'll see you next time.